0: Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, things are wrong around here. There is suffering and death and war and rumors of war, disease, destruction, difficulty. Things decay and fall apart. This world is not as you originally created it and it is not as it will one day be. And we know that all will be made right when you appear. And so we lift up our hearts together as your people, even praying as you taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. With that prayer you taught your disciples, we would add the final words of your Bible. And just say, come Lord Jesus. We long for your own vindication. We long for your receiving the honor you are due. And we long for the day when this broken world will be fixed. Lord, help us now this morning as we look at your word and as we examine what your word has to say about your day. And we pray that you'd be honored in it and that everyone in this room would be prepared for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, we are working our way through the book of Revelation once again, and we are in the cracks between Revelation 5 and 6, just as a reminder, we'll be diving in verse by verse in chapter 6 beginning next week, Lord willing, and so in this interlude we are looking at the biblical topic of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, man has a day. Man has had quite a run on this earth and humanity is a mixed bag. Every human being created in the image of God bears some resemblance to that original creation, but as John Calvin said, that image of God and man is marred almost beyond recognition. There are vestiges of what we could be and should be and yet humanity is tainted, diseased, corrupt. Humanity is... Under deception in this world, we have enemies without and we have enemies within our own hearts. Mankind by nature is in rebellion against God from birth and our attitudes and the actions that work out in our lives. There is, of course, corruption at the highest levels and corruption at the deepest parts. Sometimes we look at the evil around us and we ask, does God not see? Does God not know? Is he weak? Is he absent? Has he taken a vacation? Where is God? Particularly when we see suffering, hardship, pain, difficulty that seems to have no connection to consequence or logic or order. Did God make vain threats when he said he would do right? Did he make empty promises about blessing and joy and happiness? Make no mistake, friends, the tides will turn and the Lord will have his day. The Lord's day is not here yet because God is not ready. Don't mistake his patience with his endorsement of a life lived apart from him. He is patient until all those that are his repent and turn and believe. Let's look at a roadmap of our series in the book of Revelation. I have it for you up on the screen. The book of Revelation is a record of world history, future world history. From chapter 4 forward, everything we read in the book of Revelation has not happened yet. It is still yet future you remember in chapter 1 was the vision John received of the glorified Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 were those letters to the seven churches that Jesus penned to the first century. And then from chapter 4 and chapter 5, the throne room scene forward, uh, we have events that have not yet transpired. That throne room scene introduces us to what the Bible calls the tribulation, and that is Revelation chapter 6 through 18 all of those chapters detailing the judgments of God from heaven against those who will dwell on the earth at that time. Followed by chapter 19 and the return of Christ to the earth. Followed then by chapter 20 and the reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years in the golden age of human history. Followed by... The demolition of the universe, Revelation 21 and 22, and a new heavens and a new earth for all of eternity. That's the outline of the book. It, it flows roughly chronologically, and there indented, you see that middle section from chapter 6 to chapter 20. The events of that section of Revelation, the, the section we're about to start next week, give us a, a detailed account of the events of what the rest of the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And so we're doing this morning something of a biblical theological study of that section from the rest of Scripture. What does the rest of the Bible have to say about this section we're about to get into in the book of Revelation? Last week, we looked at one text from Ezekiel 20, which gave us a window into the day of the Lord. And this week, we'll be looking at many texts. In the providence of God, we've just concluded our Old Testament books of the Bible in our Sunday night series, making our way in 66 66 weeks through every book of the Bible. Uh, We just finished up the Old Testament, which of course took us through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the 12 minor prophets. And the refrain from each one of those was a refrain in significant measure concerning the day of the Lord, a series of unfulfilled promises, outstanding prophecies, Promises and prophecies concerning Israel and concerning the nations of the world. And those were promises both for judgment and for restoration. There was bad news and good news in those promises. There would be global warfare and one day world peace. This is the uniform testimony of all of Scripture. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament speaks of the establishment of God's rule on the earth And the judgment of his enemies. It will be the eviction of the usurpers of the earth. Those unlawful tenants who live here in rebellion against the owner. God will evict those squatters, those interlopers. And the way he's going to go about doing that is what we see in Revelation 6-18. through The period of the tribulation. This is the 70th week from the Old Testament prophet Daniel. That that week of years or that seven of years. Seven year period of time. And the purpose of that period will be to judge the world of unbelievers. To prepare Israel for Messiah's return to the earth. To give relief to believers and retribution to unbelievers. And to vindicate God. In the end the Lord will have his day. The day of man will be done. And the day of the Lord will begin. You remember the problem of the modern philosopher related to the existence of evil. How can evil exist if God is, and he knows everything, and he's powerful, and he's good? Something must have escaped either God's existence, or his knowledge, or his power, or maybe his love, if evil exists. But of course, the biblical answer to that is yes, evil exists. And it, like all under other things, is subject to the purposes of God for His own glory. You and I could shake our fist at the heavens and say, "Evil exists, therefore I won't worship God." Or you could say, "I'll worship God because the, he's the only hope against evil." And we remember Solomon's words from Ecclesiastes 8: "Because the judgment against an evil deed is not executed quickly. The hearts of the sons of men are given more fully to do evil. It's just a reminder of of who we are and what we're like. I feel like I'm not going to get punished for this thing. Great, I'll do more. Just wait. Romans 2 tells us that when we have that mindset, we are actually storing up against ourselves a storehouse of the wrath of God. That storehouse will one day be unleashed the unleashing of that is summed up in this biblical theological topic called the day of the lord and what we want to do this morning is just take some time to understand the day of the lord i'm going to begin by reading some passages i have these for you up on the screen i have the references and you can follow along um, or you can just listen and these will give us an overwhelming flavor of The topic of the day of the Lord, this of course is not exhaustive. Uh, The topic of the day of the Lord covers so much of our Bibles. But here are some texts to listen to. Beginning in Isaiah 2. The proud look of man will be abased. And the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble." Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. "'Cruel with fury and burning anger "'to make the land a desolation. "'And he will exterminate its sinners from it. "'For the stars of heaven and their constellations "'will not flash forth their light. "'The sun will be dark when it rises "'and the moon will not shed its light. "'Thus I will punish the world for its evil "'and the wicked for their iniquity. "'I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud "'and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. "'I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold.' and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. Isaiah 24, beginning in verse 21. So it will happen in that day that Yahweh the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high, and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon, and will be confined in prison, And after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. Isaiah 34, 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance. A year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Jeremiah 25, verse 31. A clamor has come to the end of the earth. Because the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. As for the wicked, he has given them to the sword, declares the Lord. And verse 33, those slain by the Lord on that day will be from one end of the earth to the other. They will not be lamented, gathered, or buried. They will be like dung on the face of the ground. Jeremiah 30, beginning in verse 5. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Obadiah 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. And Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Those are sobering words. I don't know if you've ever lined up those words of your Bible together and read them consecutively like that. You have to know this is God's plan for the world. These are promises. These are prophecies. They will come to pass as sure as God is God. If we want to understand the day of the Lord this morning, we're going to discover what the Scriptures say by asking a few questions. First of all, let's just ask, what is the day of the Lord? If you're keeping an outline, we're just going to follow four questions this morning. What is the day of the Lord? The phrase day of the Lord shows up 19 times in the Old Testament, four times in the New Testament. And then similar phrases show up like that day, the day, the great day, another 75 times. Elsewhere, this day is called a day of vengeance, a day of wrath, a day of visitation, and the great day of God the Almighty. What is this day? Well, this day, first of all, is just a period of time. And you know the word day can be used to describe not only a 24-hour period, but also a period of time that's not 24 hours. In fact, the first page of your Bible has both of these. Genesis 1-5, we read that God called the light day. What is day in the first half of Genesis 1-5? It is the light period. It's not a 24-hour period. It's the period of a day where there is light. And in the second half of verse 5, we have another sentence. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. Second use of the word day is a 24-hour period. And that comes in subsequent days in the opening scenes of Genesis 1. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, day 7, all with those ordinal numbers indicate a complete rotation of the earth on its axis. Uh, evening and morning is one day, so you have two uses of the word "day" there in one verse: uh, day for a period of time, daytime, and day for a twenty-four-hour period. And this word "day" can be used for various lengths of time and events in Scripture. Second Corinthians six two uses the word "day" to describe the day of salvation. Now, that's not one day on a calendar; um, that is a day of of soteriological or salvation events uh, per believer. And then this word can be used to describe a period of time delineating a sequence of events. A day of vengeance, says Isaiah 34, eight, And immediately after calling it a day of vengeance, Isaiah calls it a year of recompense. In other words, there is a, a period of time going on. In, in one time called a day, another a year. And other passages of Scripture describe the details of this day that is coming... As encompassing events that take many more than one day, but the whole period is called the day of the Lord. When we hear the phrase, the Lord's day, what do we often think of? We think of Sunday, right? Uh, that came to be used of Sundays, of the, of the first day of the week, uh, sometime late in the first, early second century. And it probably comes from John's usage in Revelation one ten. But I don't believe John was saying, I got a vision from the Lord on a Sunday. There are other ways for him to say that. I think that John was actually transported by vision into this day of the Lord that we're talking about here. Uh, There's no apostrophe S possessive in Greek. You have to describe that relationship by saying a day belonging to the Lord or a day of the Lord. And so when we hear the Lord's day, what we're talking about in Scripture is that period of time belonging to the Lord, and it's in contrast to the day of man, the day of man which has lasted up to this point at least. God has let the earth spin with humanity in rebellion all this time so far, but one day he will have his day. And the day of the Lord is a period of both darkness and light. Similar to the usage we found in Genesis 1 5. Uh, That first day, day one, had darkness and light. It was evening and it was morning. Similarly, the day of the Lord will have something of a a dark period and a bright period A, a time of darkness and judgment, a time of light and salvation. There will be the purging of Israel and then there will be the blessing and salvation of Israel. There will be the judging of many nations and then there will be the rescuing of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. All of these things are encompassed within the biblical idea of the day of the Lord. I have on the outline for you a chart of the day of the Lord in two phases. You see there phase one. Is the 70th week of Daniel. When we went through verse by verse through the book of Daniel, we discovered that last period of seven years called Daniel's 70th week, uh, where the great and awful period called the tribulation would take place. That mirrors significantly what the book of Revelation does in chapters 6 through 18. That's the phase one of the day of the Lord. It's marked by gloom and darkness and the shaking of the heavens and the demolition of the earth and the judgment of the nations. And it's followed by phase two of the Day of the Lord, uh, which is the thousand-year reign of Messiah on the earth. The restoration of the earth to a Garden of Eden-like state with blessings for all of humanity, with Jesus Christ reigning on His throne in Jerusalem. Uh, That is the period of world peace that we're all looking forward to. And it comes by darkness first, light second the the evening as it were followed by the morning in the darkness period of the day of the lord from the texts we just read here's a summary of things god will be doing he will lay low the pride of man isaiah 2 he will remove every false religion from the earth isaiah 2 there will be a universal destruction Over the whole face of the globe, Isaiah 13. There will be astronomical signs. The sun and the moon and the stars will all be affected, Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 24. There will be worldwide judgment against the political powers of the world, Isaiah 13. There will be unprecedented trouble like there has never been before, Jeremiah 30. And there will be retribution. Some people want karma to sort of take over. You do something bad, something bad will happen to you. Uh, Obadiah is more specific. The things that you do, the Lord has already seen. And he will bring every act to judgment. And if you're in Jesus Christ, you're safe from the judgment to come, not because God isn't serious about judging sin, but because if you are in Jesus Christ, your sins have been placed on him already and have already been judged by a righteous and holy God. It's the only way God can dispense grace towards sinners. Make no mistake, His judgment, His retribution is coming. That's the darkness side of the passages we just read. But there's also the light side or the morning side of the passages we just read. What is God going to do? He's going to bring about the salvation of Israel. A military rescue and a spiritual renewal. And He'll bring about Israel's worship of Messiah. Literally, Uh, They will worship Yahweh when he's king on the earth and the Messiah he installs. According to Obadiah 17, there will be some who escape this judgment that is coming. How will they escape? By faith in the gospel. Isaiah 19 details that the world will for the first time respect and dread Israel. The entire world. And Isaiah 19 depicts a worldwide allegiance to Yahweh. There will, in fact, be repentance and the worship of Yahweh in places like Egypt and Assyria. A pillar to God will show up in Egypt. There will be altars built to him in foreign lands. And then Isaiah 24 details the reign of the Lord himself in Jerusalem. Some passages depict both the darkness and the light of the day of the Lord. Listen to Isaiah 19.22. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so that they will return to the Lord. And then he describes Egypt, Assyria, and Israel all being three parties in the worship of God on the earth at that time. Listen to Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness all the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then Isaiah 60 verse 7 says this, All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you and the rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar and I shall glorify my glorious house. if you were in a quipping hour earlier this morning, uh, we learned that Nebaioth was the first son of Ishmael and Kedar, the second son of Ishmael. Uh, That's the lineage of the Arab peoples that are predominantly allied against Israel currently. What is the promise of God from the prophet Isaiah? One day, the Arab world will worship the God of Israel. It's a promise from God. Hasn't happened yet. Some passages uh, demonstrate for us not just the darkness and light, but two other aspects of the day of the Lord that we might call the broad perspective and the narrow perspective. There's a second chart for you. The broad day of the Lord is the overarching period of all of it, and it covers approximately a 1,007 years. Seven years of tribulation, followed by the return of Christ, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, culminating in a final rebellion, and the demolition of the universe. All of that comes under the heading of the day of the Lord in Scripture. And so that's the broad day of the Lord. Narrowly speaking, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord, is located on one day, one specific time period on the calendar. And that is the physical return of Christ to the earth in Revelation 19. So the great and terrible day of the Lord is a moment in time when Jesus returns. That's the narrow. And the broad day of the Lord encompasses all these end times events that we're describing. Listen to Joel's description of the narrow day. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Joel is describing events that happen during the broad day of the Lord happening before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the narrow day. And then Malachi 4.5 similarly says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So Elijah the prophet will come during the tribulation period, the the broad day of the Lord, but he will come prior to the narrow day of the Lord, that is the great and terrible day of the Lord. The narrow day of the Lord is the climax of the judgment portion. It's the end of the darkness portion of the day of the Lord, because Christ will come personally to the earth to lay waste his enemies. This will mark the end of man's day. It will mark the end of Satan's rule On the earth. What does the Bible call Satan now? He's a lion roaming the earth seeking someone to devour. He is the God of this world, small g. And the return of Christ to the earth ends all of that. The day of rebellious mankind will be over. Satan will then be bound for a thousand years. The glorious reign of Messiah on the earth will begin. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14. This is our final text looking at what is the day of the Lord. I couldn't decide whether to assign this chapter to you as homework or just to read it all in total now and run out of time at the end of the sermon. It's hard to skip this chapter. We're just going to read the whole thing. So follow along, Zechariah 14. Here we see the narrow and the broad aspects of the day of the Lord together in one text. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, women ravished, half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. In that day... His feet will stand on the mount of olives which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And and for those of you in this room that were with us last January and stood on this spot. It's just stunning to read this text. The mount of olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. Half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then Yahweh, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. That's the scene of Revelation 19. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimen south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate, as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security." Now this will be the plague with which Yahweh will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongue will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that a great panic from Yahweh will fall on them. They will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance." so also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If a family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which Yahweh smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In that day will be inscribed to the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts and all who sacrifice will come and will take them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of Yahweh of hosts in that day. What do we see in Zechariah 14? We see broad day of the Lord that encompasses the judgments leading up to the narrow day of the Lord and the arrival of the king and then everything that flows out of it into his kingdom on the earth. That is what we will see in the day of the Lord. It is promises kept. God's promise to be faithful to himself and to his own name in order to save and preserve his people, but also to judge sin. And that great promise that is the refrain throughout the Old Testament I will be their God and they will be my people will come to pass. God will be seen as the only God, no competing religions, no competing culture, no competing worldviews. He will be honored. Man will not continue to have his way on the earth. The Lord will have his way. This will be the Lord's day and no longer man's day. Think about all that man has done up to this point with all of his ingenuity, all of his brilliance, all of his expertise. Again, the vestiges of the image of God in man working, working, working. And man is unable to fundamentally solve the world's problems. In fact, the more the man puts his mind and heart to it, the worse it gets. It's really stunning when you think all that we are capable of and yet all that we accomplish. So when is the day of the Lord? When is the day of the Lord? Second question for this morning. Well, the the phrase is used to describe both near and far events. Several times in Scripture, the day of the Lord is used to describe, uh, from the prophet's perspective, something that's happening soon. An example would be Ezekiel 33, where he describes the day of the Lord, when when God will have his day and actually judge Egypt, and that's fulfilled in Ezekiel 30, verse 10, by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. In other words, it had a, a near fulfillment. And that was called the day of the Lord. Not the final future day of the Lord that much of the Bible talks about, but a day of the Lord's reckoning. Joel chapter 1 is another example. In fact, the entire book of Joel is about the day of the Lord, but Joel chapter 1 talks about a near plague of locusts that comes on the land and eats all the crops. And then Joel chapters 2 and 3 talks about the future day of the Lord. So you see sort of sandwiched together the near fulfillment and the distant promise back to back Uh, that's not uncommon in the prophets a lot of times you have conflation of near future events and distant future events but the future day of the lord that we're talking about this morning will be unmistakable it will be worldwide and it takes place after the era of the church the day of the lord biblically does not include the rapture That is the period where the believers who are here are immediately given resurrection bodies, they bypass death, and they are with the Lord forever. That is not included in the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord does include the tribulation, the return of Christ, the millennial kingdom, the final revolt, and then the demolition of the present universe. In fact, the events that bookend the day of the Lord span approximately 1,007 years. The first event, properly, is Daniel's 70th week. And the last event we'll finish with this morning is 2 Peter 3.10, which is the dissolving by fire of the present universe at the elemental level. So this, again, is the era when the Lord has his day. Contrary to the day of man, contrary to everything we've experienced in this world since the fall of man in Genesis 3, you and I are currently living in man's day. And after this will come the Lord's day. So when will it start? Well, the Bible's clear about this. We don't know. You can't know. You're not supposed to know. It's supposed to be a surprise. Listen to First Thessalonians chapter 5. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. What does that mean? You don't know when it's coming. It's coming by surprise. It's furtive. And while people are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Think about that. Fast forward to a time in world history when everybody will saying, "Will be saying, Hey, did you check the news lately? There, there's not a war on the planet. There's no hot spots. There, this is great. We've arrived. Then the day of the Lord will come. It'll be a surprise to those who are here. Question number three. I know that was disappointing. When is the day of the Lord? Uh, can't tell you. Number three. What will happen during the day of the Lord? Because the future day of the Lord will encompass the worldwide judgment of God against the nations, the restoration of Israel to the land, the blessings of the reign of God on the earth, and the final destruction of the present universe, we can actually detail the events of the things happening during the day of the Lord from all of the passages that deal with those topics. And no single passage gives all of the details. So you're looking at a a grand sweep of the Bible's testimony to what happens. And don't try to write these things down. (laughs) I'm going to talk fast. I'm going to give you a list. I may or may not reference the the passages. If you want my notes, email me and I'll send you the details. Is that fair? You'll get carpal tunnel syndrome if you try to write all this down. What will happen during the day of the Lord? Um, Number one, the turning point of history. First Thessalonians 5 details that this is something new, something that happens after. This is the tide change from everything that's been going on up to this point. Secondly, what happens during the day of the Lord is Daniel's 70th week of years, his 70th seven of years, a grouping of seven years that is split in half, three and a half, three and a half, between a period of time where there is a, a treaty kept with Israel, between Israel and the Antichrist, And then at three and a half year mark, that treaty is broken. And what happens next, the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. So you have the Tribulation, seven years, the last three and a half of it called the Great Tribulation, which will be a time of such awful violence, such a lack of love between the closest of relationships that no part of human history will have been like it, not before and not after. What comes under this Daniel's 70th week of years? A revived Roman Empire, Daniel 2, Daniel 7. The great apostasy, the turning away from God on a massive global scale, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The sense of peace and safety that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 5. Finally, a worldwide cessation of hostilities. Aren't we doing great? <laughs> then the covenant with Israel, Daniel 9, 27. And the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, That will be involving the judgments of God from heaven against the nation in the unfolding sort of uh, telescoping judgments of six seal judgments and a a seventh seal unfolding six trumpet judgments and a seventh judgment unfolding seven bowl judgments on the earth. A series of cataclysmic, miraculous, awful judgments from heaven. It'll be the worst period of human history. There will be 144,000 Jewish males set apart as a witness to the gospel. There will be a world religion under a false prophet. And then the Antichrist will set up the abomination of desolation. What is that? That's when he goes into the temple that is rebuilt in Jerusalem. He will declare himself to be God and he will demand the world worship him. There will be unparalleled worldwide tribulation during this time. Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that the gospel will be proclaimed globally during this time. Even in the worst period of human history, God will still be saving sinners who trust him. There will be masses of Gentiles saved, in fact, from every tongue and tribe and nation and people, according to Revelation chapter 12. And then many of them will be martyred, according to Revelation chapter 6. What will it be like to believe in Jesus during that time period? Um, You'll be on the run. And you very likely get killed. Elijah the prophet will be sent, Malachi 4 5. And all of that will culminate in the return of Christ. This again is that narrow day of the Lord described in Revelation 19. What happens at his return? Well, first of all, the purging and repentance of Israel. They will see the one that they crucified and they will mourn in repentance. That was our Messiah. Zechariah 12.10, Zephaniah three nine, Romans 11. Israel will go from being an apostate nation that rejected the gospel to being a nation of faith, spiritual renewal from the heart, actually believing Jesus the Messiah. Next will come the battle of Armageddon. Ezekiel 38 and 39, Revelation 16, Revelation 19. That is the assembly of all the armies of the world, Against Jesus, it was stunning. Again, last January to be in Israel and to stand on the on the hill in Nazareth, Jesus' own hometown, where he grew up, where he had done some miracles down by the Sea of Galilee, he came back to his hometown. They didn't believe him. They wanted him to show off and and prove it with some tricks. And he said, "I'm not going to do tricks for you. Um, your, your hearts are full of unbelief." As a result, they tried to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> He eluded their their grasp because his time had not yet come. And it was stunning to stand on that hill and then shortly thereafter to drive across the valley and end up on another hill. It would be something like standing on the top of Camelback Mountain and looking across to South Mountain. Camelback Mountain where they would have thrown him off a cliff and then driving around to South Mountain to a place called Megiddo. And, and the Hebrew word for mount or mountain is har. So har-megiddo is where we get the word Armageddon. And in between these two hills is this great broad valley. A valley that Alexander the Great said, this is the greatest place for military warfare any place on the earth. A broad plain that is set up perfectly for giant armies to meet each other. And it is a, a valley that leads right up to Jerusalem. The world's armies will gather there and actually march up to Jerusalem in an attempt to defeat Jesus militarily when he returns. So stunning to stand there and recognize from the from the uh, place called Armageddon and, and look back across that valley at the hometown where Jesus grew up and realized his entire boyhood overlooked the valley where the world would rebel against him with all their military might. That's what he saw every day. And, and how will Jesus close out that battle? Revelation 19 is very clear. Uh, this would not make a great movie. Not a back and forth, I don't know who's going to win, but all the armies assembled and Jesus descends and destroys them with the word of his mouth. It's just game over for all the armies of the world followed by the destruction of the beast and the false prophet that's the antichrist and his right hand religious leader in fact those two are just thrown alive into the eternal lake of fire they're the first ones into the lake of fire and they're thrown there after that battle Then you have the extra days of Daniel 12. If you remember the book of Daniel, the 1260 days, that's the second three and a half years, the great tribulation, are followed by another 30 days to 1290, and then another 45 days to 1335 for a total of 75 extra days between the return of Christ and the battle of Armageddon and the start of the millennial kingdom. What is that 75 days for? Uh, Daniel doesn't tell us, but there are some events that have to happen before the start of the millennial kingdom. One of those is the sheep and goats judgment, detailed in Matthew 25 and Joel 3. That is, God will sort out everyone who survived from the battle of Armageddon. Everybody who's left on the earth at that point, after all of God's judgments, and after that great big battle, who's left? And And Jesus said that he will sit on his glorious throne and sort them out as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And those who do not belong to him by faith will be ushered into destruction. And those who survived alive and believe in him walk into a brand new kingdom. Of course, that 75 years might also be required for something like a cleanup of the earth after the scorched earth of the tribulation. Then in Revelation chapter 20, you have the incarceration of Satan. Satan. In fact, turn there. This is such good news. I know there are those who uh, believe that Satan is like a Gary Larson cartoon figure. Um, Maybe a Halloween costume. Maybe he doesn't exist at all. But the Bible tells us he's like an angel of light. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. He's convincing He's not out there with a a pitchfork and red horn saying, I'm Satan, turn the pentagram upside down, say the number 666, read your Bible backwards and worship me. Some people do that. Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan, sure. But Satan's big scheme is to look like the truth and to look good and to look like love and acceptance and harmony and all those lies. Look at Revelation chapter 20. I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. What is he doing now? He's deceiving the nations. Then he will not be able to until the thousand years are completed. Can you imagine a world Without satanic deception, without a lion roaming the earth seeking someone to devour, without the angel of light bringing about difficulty for God's people. Also, during this time will be the resurrection of Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs. This is when believers from the Old Testament get their glorified bodies, and those who were killed during the tribulation who believed in Christ get glorified bodies. It's called the first resurrection, not because it's the first resurrection that ever happens in your Bible, because it's the resurrection of the first kind, not the second kind. The second kind, by contrast, at the end of Revelation 20, is the kind that leads to eternal destruction in the lake of fire. And then you have the regathering and restoration of Israel to the land, Amos 9, Isaiah 11. What will happen? A great exodus from all the dispersion of all the places, of all the believing Jews anywhere in the world marching their way back to Jerusalem. To enjoy the blessings that God promised long ago. That leads into the next major section of the day of the Lord, which is the millennial kingdom. Notice in Revelation chapter 20, you have the the phrase thousand years given six times in the span of six verses. It's very clear that there's a period before the thousand years, there are things that happen during the thousand years, and there's things that happen after the thousand years. What happens during the 1,000-year period of time? Christ reigns on the earth. 2 Timothy 2.12 says that church age saints will reign with him. And Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6, describes the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. They didn't worship the beast or his image. They didn't receive the mark of the beast on their forehead. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a 1,000 years. At that time, Israel will actually be a blessing to the nations. I will give you homework on this one. Read Isaiah 60. We won't go there now. The nations will worship Yahweh. Yahweh will be installed as king in Zion. If you're confused, wait, I thought Yahweh was going to be king in Zion. I thought Jesus was going to be the king in Zion. The answer is yes. It's one of those great attestations in your Bible that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. God promised he would be king. Jesus will be king. Jesus is God. And there will be world peace. Isaiah two four. They will beat their swords into plowshares. All the technology of the military industrial complex turned into machinery that benefits human production, productivity, happiness, and delight. World peace. With all the brilliance, all the ingenuity, all the engineering that man is capable of, without the taint of sin, without the blinding of Satan without the corruption that we experience now. Think about what could the world be? What could man be when set free from the tyranny of the day of man? There is a final event under the umbrella of the day of the Lord. It is the final revolt. Look at this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released. You ever read that verse and just think, Whoa, 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 wait a second. That's not how it's supposed to go. He, he gets out again? Did the chain break? Did the angel not hold him in? What, what's the deal? This is in the purpose of God. And when we get to Revelation 20 in our study, uh, we'll talk about some of the reasons God does this. But for now, just note, uh, this is going down at the end. Satan is released. There is a final battle, verses 8 and 9. And notice humanity in numbers like the sand on the seashore, will actually ally themselves with Satan? You know, sports fans understand this. You like to root for the underdog. You hate the dynasty, even if it's a really good team. You want somebody else to take over sometimes. There's something in the heart of man, still with sin in his nature. We're not talking about heavenly glorified beings here. We're talking about the mortals, who are still sinners, that populate a perfect environment will still gravitate towards Satan at the end. There will be a final battle followed by the tossing of Satan into the lake of fire. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet already are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's followed by the great white throne judgment where Jesus will sit on his throne and assess every human heart from all the books. All the, all the unbelieving dead are gathered there and all their deeds are recorded. Uh, nothing was ever secret. Jesus knows it all. And that will be followed by the demolition of the present universe. Look at verse 11 of Revelation 20. I saw him who sat on the throne and from his presence, earth and heaven fled away. Uh, the, the word there in, in Greek is the word we get our word fugitive from. <laughs> heaven the universe heavens and the earth is a way to describe everything that exists just ran away like a fugitive from his presence at this moment that's one way to describe the demolition of the present universe second peter says it will all be dissolved by fire what does that lead to revelation 21 1 then i saw a new heaven and a new earth a new universe And the eternal state where there's no more sin, no more curse at all, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. The first things have gone. What does the day of the Lord cover? Everything up to the beginning of the new heavens, new earth. So from the time of the beginning of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, all the way up through the millennial kingdom, final rebellion and the dissolution of the universe. Final question this morning is, how should I prepare for the day of the Lord? Maybe we should just start by saying, you better. you better. You'd better be prepared. This is an inexorable reality that cannot be stopped. The prophets have already told us, all the gold and silver of the world can't buy your way out of it. There's nothing you can do to avoid the freight train of history that God is driving. And so you better be prepared. Number one, I would tell you, just be prepared by faith and repentance. Listen to the prophet Amos. He's asking, in the sense, a rhetorical question. So what will the day of the Lord be to you? Will it be darkness or will it be light? Will it be judgment or will it be salvation? This depends on how you relate to the God of the Bible. Listen to Amos 5.18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or he goes home and leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? A message to those who might have wanted God to judge their enemies, but weren't prepared for God to assess their hearts. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You want to know how to be prepared for this? Do as the Thessalonians did. Let's know how Paul described their faith in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. How do you avoid the coming wrath? Turn to God. From idols, from every competitor, from the worship of self, the worship of stuff, whatever it is, turn to him in faith. Believe the gospel. So what is the gospel? What is the good news? It is that, God himself in the person of Jesus Christ came to earth and died on a cross to pay for your sins. You trust him. You entrust yourself to him. And you are covered by God's mercy and his love. And will not be subject to the wrath that is coming. Second way you need to think about preparing for the day of the Lord. Anticipation. 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 This is something the believer longs for, looks forward to. Jesus told his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, Your kingdom come, your will be done. The book of Revelation ends, the Bible ends with this prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 describes Christians as those who wait for his son. That's a great definition of a Christian. Are you waiting for Jesus? Do you look up in the sky and, and ask, Could it be today? Could I see my Lord today? That is the heart of a believer. A third way to be prepared. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Listen to 2 Thessalonians. Paul wrote truths about the end times to the Thessalonians in the first letter. And in the second letter, he had to respond to some things they heard in the meantime. They had gotten... Maybe a letter from somebody saying it was from Paul. Somebody told them that Paul said some stuff and he had to correct it. Look at chapter two, verse one. We request you brothers with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is present, that we're already in it. Let no one deceive you. It won't come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. What does that mean? Um, Don't buy into fads and trends. Anytime something crazy happens in the Middle East, Some Christian authors start writing books, get on YouTube channels. Listen, you can chase those things out, and people are saying, This thing's fulfilled now. This prophecy's fulfilled now. Don't buy it. Don't get suckered into that stuff. And don't start naming dates. Jesus said, No one knows. When will we know that the day of the Lord is here? When it's here. (laughs) It hasn't happened yet. Don't be deceived. Number four how do you be prepared? By the way, I will just say, every generation of, of Christians has thought, man, this has to be it. Can you imagine being in Europe during World War II? Christians thought it was it, it was over. Um, Christians in our day think it's over. Um, when I was in high school living in North Texas, uh, there was like a prophecy conference every week and they all said it's over and they were counting down the days. <laughs> Some generation is going to be Right? Just make sure you're not wrong. Is that a fair warning? All right, number four, how to be prepared. Get your priorities in order. Listen to Jesus' words, Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Jesus also said in Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Where's your heart? Are you, as some have said, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic? Are you busy about storing up your stuff here and, and making a nest and a home here? Christian, your home is in heaven. Our citizenship is, present tense, in heaven, from whom we wait a savior. Don't busy yourself with the things that God is going to destroy in a way that takes you away from putting his priorities first and seeking his kingdom. Fifth way to prepare. Live out the ethic built on a biblical eschatology. Eschatology, fancy word for end times. Live out the ethic the Bible lays out. The Bible gives prophecies and promises about the future not so that we can satisfy some intellectual curiosity about what's going to go on. It's always followed by a therefore. This is what's coming. Therefore, do this. We might call that an ethical eschatology. 1 Thessalonians five one, a discussion of the day of the Lord followed by therefore, give courage to one another. Luke 12, the king will return. Therefore, live urgently. Three parables from Jesus for obedient readiness. Listen, the Bible gives us commands to study eschatology and then we are commanded to live in light of it. We'll close with 2 Peter three two. This is a command to study it. You should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the command of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. That includes end times. You have to study it. And here's the command to live by it. 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Let's pray. Come quickly, Lord. We long for the day when we will be done sinning. How grievous it is that we who love you with our lips so often fail you in our hearts. Those failures come out in the things that we say and the things that we do. We are tainted through and through. And we who are forgiven feel the sting of dishonoring you. We thank you for one that one day we will not even be able to. So we ask that you would come and vindicate your own name, prove your promises, and be glorified on the earth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.